Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. How's everybody doing today? You doing all right? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm struggling a little bit. I got a bit of an allergy Mm -hmm. situation, so if it sounds a little uh, more nasally than normal, that's probably why. I don't know what you're talking about. But we're Audio Judo, your podcast of music discovery, uh, proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the number one music podcast network in the world. Mm -hmm. Besides this program that you're listening to, we co-produce two other podcasts that if you are a music lover uh, would be great additions to your library. They are Audio Judo Does Jazz, which is an in-depth look at the history of jazz music with an angle of getting the novice jazz fan an introduction to that world with some broad strokes of personal experience. The other podcast is called Throughline, and that one takes an album per episode and tries to find the concept on the record, whether that be musical, lyrical, artistic, or otherwise. Uh, You can find both of those at Pantheon as well, or you can find them at audiojudo.com. We also have additional content at our Patreon site for as low as as one dollar. Kyle, how would they do that? Well, you can't actually get the additional content for a dollar, oh, unfortunately. Well, I lied. If you want to help out the podcast a little bit, you can uh, for a dollar or a pound or a euro or whatever uh, you, one of your local currency is. I actually think in Japan it would be a hundred yen, but just as a heads up. We have uh, three Patreon tiers. You can go to patreon.com forward slash audio judo to see what they are. But just to reiterate, the lowest tier is called the shout it out loud tier. And that's the one I was just talking about and for one pound or dollar or whatever. You can get a shout out at the end of every single episode episode by name or nickname if you choose. You want to help out a little bit more and get that uh, bonus content Matthew was just talking about, you can jump up to the front row seats tier. It's $5 a month. And for that, you get a shout out by name at the end of every episode, early access to the episodes via Patreon, access to the uh, little mini episodes that we call Judo Chops, and some access to little bonus bits that we had to cut out of episodes. You really want to help out the uh, podcast and get a lot more in return for yourself. You can jump up to the backstage past tier. Uh, it's $20 per month, but for that, you get a shout out by name at the end of every episode, early access to the episodes on Patreon. Patreon, access to the mini episodes, uh, the judo chops, access to uh, bonus bits that we had to cut from the episodes. Plus, after three months at that tier, you'll get a special gift from Matthew and I. Plus, uh, the big one, after one year at that tier, you can co-host an episode of Audio Judo with us on an episode of your choice uh, that does only activate once, and you do have to be a patron at that level for one year, or the equivalent of one year. If you do six months, take a few months off and do six more months, we'll count it as a year. 
On that same note, if you're not interested in being on the episode, we will do an episode of your choice just ourselves if you're not interested. So just putting that one out there. That's an option. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, today we're going to talk about one of my favorite albums of this era or any other era as we head back to 1981 to talk about Ghost in the Machine by The Police. Mm. Now, this is not the first time we've talked about The Police. We also covered their album Synchronicity on our episode uh, Best Last Albums. Oh, yeah. If you're interested in uh, listening to that episode, and why wouldn't you be? It is episode number 23 and can be found on our website, audiojudo.com. So first of all, let me just ask this question. Is there another band in the history of rock music or any music that had a five-album run like The Police? Or, more to the point, had a run that did not include an okay or average record? There is not a clunker in the bunch. That's true. Beatles had Magical Mystery Tour. That wasn't great. You know, even my beloved Rush had Test for Echo, which is not an album I spend any time listening to at all. From Outlandus Demore to Synchronicity, every single album is an album of great songs. It was like this super intense output of material and creativity. And as soon as that flame shrunk a little bit, they were gone. Yeah. Five albums in five years in which they dominated the musical landscape, reshaped it in the process, blending punk, rock, pop, reggae, and even fusion <laughs> to create a wildly original style and sell millions of records in the process. I can't think of another band that did that, or even artist, yeah. really. Yeah. And- and to me, the most impressive part about that whole thing is that they stopped. Yeah. They, they were, and it was of their own volition. They weren't like, oh, well, you know, we're out of ideas or oh, whatever. They were just like, you know what? We're going to stop because we're not coming up with the ideas that are the level of quality and, and that are, you know, as groundbreaking as those previous ideas we had. So we're going to Right. Go and they're granted ways. there was one creative force that well, was ready to peel away at, very any, true, at the drop of a hat. Yeah. But yes. They also sort of had this, this idea that the band didn't have to be exclusive. Potentially. Right. There could have been an alternate timeline where, you know, the police didn't break up. They just went their own separate ways for a little while and then came back together and did another album and then went their own separate ways for a while and came back and did their, another album. But they chose not to do that because they were like, we've exhausted our collective creativity here. There's nothing else we can do. Let's go. Right. And more power to them because most bands would wait. I mean, yeah. granted, they did they did take the enormous money grab 20 some years later yeah. with a tour, but still no <laughs> album. Was that 2007, 2008 when they did yes. that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Enormous because it's the third highest grossing tour in the history of music. Yeah. Still. But this album sits towards the end of that time. This was their fourth album, would spawn two significantly huge singles, mm-hmm. one minor. It would reach number one in the UK, number three in the States, sell several million copies. Rolling Stone would place it number 322 on the top 500 albums of all time, behind three Taylor Swift albums, <laughs> which should be considered a national tragedy. It is an abomination that three, not one, but three of her records would rank higher than what this album is. This was an album forged between three competing musical geniuses in a span of eight weeks under overwhelming pressure to continue to churn out hits for a thankless record company and an overbearing manager that happened to be the brother of the drummer. (laughs) And she probably recorded hers in her living room studio after, you know, spending the day counting her millions. And frankly, besides all that, this is just the far superior record to those. But before we talk about this record and the Swifties come calling for my head. I was about to say, I need to separate myself from that. Uh, uh, I do not have any problem with Taylor Swift personally. Okay, it's fine. Uh, no, I don't have any problem I, I'm not, with her I'm personally. not particularly a fan, but I also have, uh, have no issues with any of her music. Please do not murder me. I don't have problems with her music per se. I just don't think it's on the level of what people are claiming that it is. Like it's regarded with all these classic 
records. Are, are they good songs? Sure. Is it amazing, groundbreaking material that should be ranked with some of the best creative output of all time? No, I do not. And I'll stand by that. Swifties come from my head. <laughs> Before we talk about Ghost in the Machine, we should talk about the band that made that one of the finest bands ever put together, The Police. The Police. Police were formed completely in 1977 in London. I say completely because drummer Stuart Copeland and bass player slash singer Sting actually met in 1976 when Copeland was touring with progressive band Curved Air, and they swung through Newcastle, where Sting is from, for a concert, and they ended up exchanging phone numbers with each other. And Sting, at that time, was playing in a jazz fusion band at time called Last Exit. Um, when Sting came to London to meet up with him, Copeland had just left Curved Air and was really eager to uh, glom on to the punk scene that was just beginning to explode in and around London. Sting was not that excited about it, but in true Sting fashion, recognized the opportunity uh, to get his face out there and there would be a significant chance for some commercial success. So they formed a trio with guitarist Henry Padovani. They say, we can make a few bucks. Let's be a punk band. Right. <laughs> Which is just counter intuitive to the movement itself, which they, they yeah. were always kind of on the fringe of those two things. Yeah, very um, much. So there's some debate about the origins of the band name. Not surprisingly, the two raging alpha males in the band, <laughs> Copeland and Sting, both claim that they came up with the name. Surprise. Uh, Sting claims that he saw the word police written on a cop car in London and thought it really captured the essence of the punk movement, which no <laughs> punk person in their life ever said, this really captures the essence. I really feel like a police officer when I'm playing in my <laughs> punk band. While Copeland claims that he named it because his father was a longtime member of the CIA and had some relationship to law enforcement. But either way, they were named the police for their initial tour as a backing band for a band called Cherry Vanilla. So around this same time, Sting was asked to join a band called Strontium 90 by gong member Mike Howlett. Mike Howlett's normal drummer wasn't available, so Sting asked if he could bring along Copeland. So he did, which is just, in my head, knowing the history of the police like I know the history of the police, <laughs> it just boggles my mind that these two, which ostensibly, you could say, hate each other, still their care for each other so deeply and loathe each other so deeply at yeah. the same time. It's well, it's amazing. Well, they were very loyal to one another. And they, Completely. I mean, I think even today, the whole band remains loyal to one another. You know, sometimes they might say, oh, we disagreed about this or we, you know, I didn't like the way we went with this or whatever, but they don't flush each other like down the toilet or throw each other under the bus. Right. They intentionally phrase things to be in a way of saying like, well, there was a disagreement about, you know, this song or this thing, or we thought this album, you know, me and, uh, you know, Stuart and Andy thought this album wasn't going to be very good and Sting thought it was or whatever, but they never are like, that guy was a dick and we were right. You know what I mean? There, there's never that kind of a, a stance taken, which I think is very telling to the fact that they recognized one another musical talents, I think, and, and yeah. still respect those to this day. Which makes you believe that the breakup of the band was an amicable, amicable exactly. breakup. It was a breakup of like, okay, I don't hate you. We're done. Yeah. So let's do other stuff and we'll always have each other's back. So yeah, I think it's important. So he asked if he could bring Stuart Copeland along. So we did. And the fourth member of the band at that time was music veteran Andy Summers. Uh, Andy Summers' resume stretched back into the 60s. He was a member of Eric Burden and the Animals for a while, as well as being the first guitarist that Jimi Hendrix came across when Jimi Hendrix landed in London and they actually jammed together in the studio. Oh. It's a nutty story. I didn't see that it's, one. That's cool. Yeah. Somehow I just literally picture Jimi Hendrix like getting off a plane and just like literally, oh, sorry, I bumped into you. Oh, is that a guitar case? Let's go, Jimi. <laughs> 
that's probably how it happened. There were just guitarists all over London at the time. Just random roaming, you know, rock guitarists. It was the 60s. I think that's exactly what it was like. Summers had toured with Neil Sedaka. And these two things aren't related in the same sentence, but he had been at the very bottom of the industry ladder. I don't mean Neil Sedaka's the bottom, (laughs) but he had been at the very bottom of the industry ladder and had some successes as well. He was also a decade older than the other two guys in the band. So they have a couple of less than successful gigs as Strontium 90, but underneath the surface, something is bubbling. The three of those guys, Copeland, Sting, and Summers, are gelling as musicians. Sting is absolutely impressed with Summers' musicality and versatility, and there's a ton of raw energy in their performances together, most likely Fury, because they played furiously. So the band more or less breaks up, but continues to do a few gigs as the Elevators back in London, but it is clear that they are half the Elevators and half the Police. Copeland is insistent that they continue on as a four-piece. Sting isn't sure, and Summers feels like the guy caught in the middle because he's in between both bands. But as the weeks progress, he's also realizing that as a fourth member, his input would be strangled. So he gives them an ultimatum. Either Henry goes or Andy goes. And the writing was on the wall and everyone knew it except for Henry. They had one last thing to do with Henry before they canned him, and that was a recording session with John Cale, a name that should sound familiar. Mm -hmm. Uh, We covered him in our last episode as a member of the Velvet Underground, and he was producing a session for them, and they were pretty excited about it, but it was a complete and absolute total disaster. He was super high, couldn't get them to do anything together, so Andy Summers played an old Led Zeppelin riff, to which John Cale exclaimed, that's perfect, let's record that. (laughs) And the band immediately packed up and left. Pat Havani was fired later that that night. And of course, in true Sting fashion, they made his friend Stuart Copeland do the firing. <laughs> you do it. No, you do I, it, Stuart. I don't want to, you do it. So now the band was together. The effect was immediate. Sting started to bring his original songs in. Summers lent his very textural approach to the songs and an identity was being formed. They were drawing on reggae, on progressive, on jazz, pop backgrounds, and the band sounded nothing like anything anyone had heard before. Uh, they would even experiment with electronic music as guest performers for German composer Eberhard Schainer. Um, In the meantime, they were uh, gigging constantly around the UK and pretty much broke, uh, so they decided to do a Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum commercial because why not? Yeah, might as well. The offer's there. And all of them dyed their hair blonde. The commercial was never released, but the blonde hair stayed. Stuck around. So the manager of the band was Stuart's older brother, Miles, and he was not crazy about Andy Summers joining the band. No, he thought it was going to make them fail, basically. Yeah, well, because he's thinking an old industry fart like him would ruin the punk street credibility that they had grown. I still don't see that, but okay. So he reluctantly loaned them $1,500 to record their debut album, and they recorded on off hours at a shitty studio called Surrey Sound Studios, which happened to be located above a dairy. <laughs> so I'm sure that was probably smelled probably smelled wonderful. wonderful. Glad we were so, on the same page on that one. That was <laughs> yeah, yeah. So late one night, Miles heard Roxanne for the first time, and while he had not been sold on the band to this point, he was now. So he secured a recording contract with A&M Records on the strength of that song alone. And the label released the single Roxanne in early 1978 while they were still working on the album and still writing the album to begin with. And it did not chart. No. In fact, it did really horribly. And um, there were rumors that it was banned by the BBC due to its depiction of prostitution. Right. The band very smartly and A&M and and Miles took this and marketed it as quote, banned by the BBC. Even though uh, it technically never was banned. Never was. Uh, And in fact, it got play on the BBC, just not a lot of play. But something like that solidifies your punk 
punk credibility. Exactly. Because once you're banned, then now you're punk. Now you're you're flipping off the man. Like mm. this, so- this song was too extreme for the popular society. I told I talked about prostitutes <laughs> in my song. So they banned me. While Roxanne was never banned, their next release, Can't Stand Losing You, was banned. Yeah, because of the cover, weirdly enough. Not for musical reasons. It was banned because the cover of the single featured Copeland hanging himself over an ice block being melted by a radiator. Now that's punk. (laughs) Yeah. That's all right. So that song got to number 42 in the UK. And the next song, So Lonely, failed to chart, which So Lonely is a great song. I don't know why it would. But it's so their debut album, Outlandis D'Amour, was released on November 2nd, 1978. And their luck was about to change because they were determined to conquer America. They relentlessly toured the States in a van, moving all of their equipment themselves, and they were starting to make a dent. Roxanne achieved more success in the States, rising to number 32 on the Billboard Top 100, and that impact would eventually be felt overseas at home as well because the song did chart when it was released a second time. Eventually, the album itself would get as high as number 23 in the States and number 6 in the UK. And it should be pointed out that of the five albums, this is the only police album not to get to number 1 in the UK, which is nuts. It would sell half a million copies by 1981 and by now has sold several million. Reviews were mixed at the time. Rolling Stone's Tom Carson blasted it. But naturally, they would eventually revise their viewpoint and put this album of, quote, mechanically-minded emptiness into their top 500 albums of all time. What? Mechanically-minded emptiness? That's what he called it, right? But in a moment of clarity, Robert Christigau praised it, Mm. calling it tuneful, straight-ahead rock and roll. Mm. Right? He had something good to say. have been sick that day. That's what I think. So, so following their extensive touring, they would record the next album spaced out over several months, but only recording for a total of four weeks. When they first got to the studio in February of 79, no one had any song ideas at all. And against the wishes of their label, who wanted them to record in a better studio with better equipment, they chose to record at the Dairy Studio again, Surrey Sound Studios, using one of the same producers, Nigel Gray. And while the first album was recorded for $1,500, this would be recorded for the lavish price of six thousand dollars right six thousand pounds six thousand pounds you're right yeah because they had made money on the last record though and they kept the cost low for this record the label had absolutely no control over the music because they weren't owed anything that's smart yeah in the business that's got to go to miles yeah that's a good move but because they had no ideas they recycled older song ideas from sting's previous band last exit So Regatta de Blanc, which was one of the first three vinyl records that I ever bought on my own, was released on October 2nd, 1979, only 11 months after their debut, and received critical acclaim immediately by the music press, except for Robert Christigau, who at this point had cooled on the band because they were now popular and we can't have that. Yeah, but Regatta de Blanc did go to number one in the UK again, like you said, number 25 on the Billboard 200, which is pretty damn good, and it included the police hits Message in a Bottle and Walking on the Moon, which are both still incredibly popular songs to this day. Net them their first Grammy Award for the title song Instrumental. Ended up number 372 on the top 500 list. Still a tragedy. For more about this record, though, I suggest yeah. you listen to one of our other podcasts, Throughline, who did a very extensive breakdown of Regatta de Blanc in their first season. That is episode number nine, if you are interested, which you should be. Number nine. Number, number nine. nine. So 
After another rigorous tour, this time the label was not about to wait. They wanted a new album and a new tour right away yeah. to capitalize on the success so far. And this was a weird tour, too. Which one? The one right after uh, Regatta de Blanc came out. Okay, yeah. And they stopped in a lot of places where tours don't normally go. Mexico, India, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Greece, Egypt. At the time, I mean, this is 1980, the idea of touring those places was ridiculous. Nobody was touring those places. Nobody wanted to tour those places. There was no money to be made in those places. Right. But they insisted, and they ended up going to those places, and they were incredibly successful because of it. And they actually filmed what was going to become a BBC documentary called Police in the East that ended up being rolled into a different documentary. The footage from it ended up being rolled into a different documentary that is an incredible record of the police in their early days. And it's like, it's a treasure. If you ever get a chance to check it out, it's it's well worth it. Oh, yeah. Tons of energy. Yeah. Yeah. So most of this record, most of the next record, was written while they were touring for Regatta. And it was recorded in a flash from July 7th to August 7th, 1980. Again, produced by Nigel Gray, the band wanted to record it at Surrey Sound again, but because of tax reasons, they could not. And I need to look into this further, because I've heard this so many times, from the Beatles, to Genesis, to the Stones, to Zeppelin, to Elton John, to Jethro Tull, and out of the police, Britain must have had, and maybe still has, the most ridiculous tax laws for recording artists. Like, like, debilit- like debilitatingly bad. If all of these artists can't live or record in their home country, and I know the Beatles, you know, George Harrison immortalized it with the song Taxman, mm-hmm. which it must have been awful. I mean, we're talking like 90%. Like, what are they taking from them? Yeah, I'm curious to know that as well, and I've, I've never looked into it either. But there has to be something with, you know, is it just if you continue to record in the UK, you have to pay, you know, oh, by, by the time you get to your third album, you have to pay us a ridiculous amount? Or yeah. is it county based? Based. Like, oh, these counties have, you know, certain taxes on, you know, repetitive business, or is it just a normal business tax, but they apply it weirdly because, you know, recording an album is a different kind of business, but it's maybe not designed around the idea of paying taxes while you record an album. I don't know. It's it's very weird, but I, I know that has come up multiple times in research for different albums where they're like, they had to record mm. that somewhere else because of taxes or because of government regulations, which is weird. Too our UK listeners out there, perhaps you guys can provide some insight. You can send us some uh, insight into that to uh, info.audiojudo.com. We would love to hear about it and then tell more people about it. So they were able to secure Nigel Gray again to produce at the Wieslord Studios in the Netherlands. And Gray had negotiated his fee to $25,000. The total cost to produce the album was $35,000. So you do the math. But things have changed at this point in the band. Andy Summers is wondering out loud how long Sting will put up with the band, knowing that his star will be much bigger. They have an uneasy alliance, but they forge on. Nigel Gray shows up to record like a rock star of his own. He shows up in fringed leather and long hair, and the band is given a month to make the album, but that gets shortened to three weeks because in the middle of recording, they spend a week doing festival dates. This excerpt I'm going to read tells you what you need to know about what was going on back then. This is from Summer's autobiography, One Train Later. This appears to be the moment for people to ply us with as many drugs as possible. But we are anxious because we are here to work, not take drugs. We need this third album. One of the problems of sniffing coke in the studio is that, apart from the illusion it creates, whereby everything you do sounds absolutely fucking great, it affects your hearing, with the result that the more stoned you become, the more you turn up the high frequencies in the mix. The end result often becomes something that would make a dog howl. (laughs) Large piles of white stuff are placed in front of us, but we don't want 
want this. We are short on time. Need this album. Can't fuck around. Further compounding the problems are Nigel's disappearances into the red light district of Amsterdam, and he wants us to go with him. It feels as though we have switched roles and are now merely providing the soundtrack to a rock and roll party that other people are enjoying. This will become a hallmark of the next few years, a place where boundaries are often blurred as the line between work and being high as a kite softens. And I think that is brilliantly captured. Yeah. Because, like, first of all, I didn't know taking cocaine messes up your high frequency or <laughs> low frequency hearing. Yeah, I'd never heard that before, but that's interesting. Right. I wonder if every why everything in the 80s sounds so trebly then. Could be. A right? lot of cocaine. A lot of cocaine. What's crazy, too, is if you think about it, it wouldn't even need to mean that everybody was doing cocaine. It just needs to mean that somebody that was successful in the early 80s was doing cocaine <laughs> and cranked the cranked the treble up and then everybody else was like, do that. Do, make do that, that, that sound. And then everybody else was like, well, all right, fuck it. We're going to crank the treble way up. And But I, I love that. But they didn't. And it makes sense that they would end up re-recording two of the songs off this record in 1986 because they were so dissatisfied with the results. Yeah. But they had bit off more than they could chew. The album was finished at 4 a.m. on the day they left to start their next tour. <laughs> Zenyatta Mondata, both invented words, <laughs> was released October 3rd, 1980. That's three albums in almost exactly three years. Yeah. The album debuted at number one on the UK charts, stayed there for four weeks. In the States, it peaked at number five, stayed on the charts for over two years. It would eventually sell over five million copies. It netted them two more Grammy Awards, one for instrumental for Behind My Camel, beating YYZ by Rush, which is unforgivable. <laughs> and also a much more coveted Grammy for Best Rock Performance by a group or duo for Don't Stand So Close to Me. Which is a great song, by the way. It Just is. Just putting that out there. Both versions. Yeah. Critical acclaim again. Rolling Stone loved it, as did most places. Strangely absent with the review was Mr. Christigo, but I hmm. think safe to say he probably hated it. The album is currently placed at Oh, what's this? It's not on the list. An absolute travesty that it is not on there. Arcade Fire has a record on there, but not this one. Garbage. Garbage. So after another successful album and tour, the band was adamant about slowing the process down to some degree, you know, slowing it down a little bit and taking longer. So they entered the studio, actually two studios, yeah. for the first time in February of 1981, just a few months after the release of Zenyatta Mondata, to record the album we're going to talk about today, 1981. One's Ghost in the Machine. It was recorded over a six-week span on the Caribbean island of Montserrat. We've also talked about that. Yeah, at Air Studios. Air Studios. Montserrat, yeah. yeah. Elton John, if I remember correctly. Sting's D solo album that we talked about. Dire Straits. Dire Straits. Rush. Yeah. Yeah, lots of people. And they also recorded in Rush's other studio, yeah. Le Studio in Quebec. Le Studio. Le Studio. And this album would continue their impeccable track record of releases. Released on October 2nd, 1981, almost a year to the day from the last record, it would debut at number one in the UK, stay there for three weeks. It would get to number two in the States, their highest mark to this point. Again, this would sell five million copies and hit all the same marks on all the critical lists. Number 322 on Rolling Stone's list, they were basically a can't miss. Yeah. But as we will see, the band was growing further apart from one another. Summers was being disillusioned as Sting wanted to bring more instruments like saxophones and keyboards into the mix. And Sting was growing bigger and bigger as a star, biding his time until his official breakout moment. This album would feature the first appearance of producer Hugh Padgham yeah. with The Police. Up until this point, he was known as the guy that created the gated drum sound for Phil Collins, made famous on In the Air Tonight. And he introduced them some unique ways of working. We talked about this. He separated them. Yeah. He had them record the songs live on the floor, but all in different parts of the house, further isolating the band at a time when isolation was probably the last thing that they needed. Regardless, though, it was a huge success. Yeah. It, following up on that, uh, you know, Andy said of it, quote, I was getting disappointed with the music 
musical direction around the time of Ghost in the Machine, with the horns and the synth coming in, the fantastic raw trio feel, all the really creative and dynamic stuff was being lost. We were ending up backing a singer doing his pop songs. Yep. Ouchie. That's a very um, biting like statement, and I think that that's definitely indicative of the direction that they were headed in. Mm-hmm. They realized they had finally, I mean, they had realized this before, but it was now the nail in the coffin of, we're the backing band for Sting until he decides, I'm done with you guys, and goes off on his own. Yeah, it does solo stuff. Yeah. You want to talk about the album artwork? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a really interesting front cover. It's an electronic, maybe a picture, maybe a graphic depiction, I couldn't figure out which, of an electronic 16-segment display, which is like a, a digital clock, basically. But uh, the graphic actually depicts the heads of all three band members, so each with their distinctive hairstyles. From left to right, it's Andy Sumner's uh, Sting with his spiky hair, and then Stuart Copeland with the uh, some fringe, which I think is really creative and very, very 80s, but it fits really well. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorite album covers. Easily identifiable as as what it is. Yeah, it's really great. Uh, they actually, they took a bunch of photos for the cover of this originally, and they couldn't decide what to use. There was a lot of uh, infighting between band members on which photo looked best. And I just, what? I just 100% picture like, this is one where Sting's standing out in front and he's like, I like that one. And then there's one where Andy's standing in front. And he's like, I like that one. And there's one where Stuart's standing out in front. And he's like, I like that one. I just picture them just fighting over it. But Yep. There's some indication that it was actually a photographic collage as well to create it, because in some of the original uh, vinyl issues, you can see some things called wire bonds, which are used to hold pieces uh, together around the edges. It's hard to see in the darkness around the edges, but you can actually see them. Those were later removed uh, in different uh, reprintings of the album, but you can see them in the original printing. And people suggest that because of that, people smarter than me about how these things were done in the early 80s suggest that that's indicates that it was a, a photographic collage with multiple layers, which were then wired together to hold them in the right spot while they took the photographs of it. Interesting. Uh, it was designed by Mick Haggerty. Yeah. And it's actually ranked as number 45 on VH1's 50 greatest album covers of all time. So I, I can absolutely see that. Mick Haggerty had done covers for ELO, for the Go-Go's, for Bowie, for Petty, and he actually won a Grammy for his design of Supertramp's Breakfast in America, yeah. which is an iconic cover in its own right. Oh yeah, the uh, diner lady holding yeah, the, waitress. the plate like the yeah. Statue of Liberty. That's a great cover. So I chose this record, just so you know. I chose this record yeah. because I've been a Police fan for over 40 years. Uh, I debated over and over again about which album to choose. Took a lot of polls with friends and family, and this ended up being the choice. It was one of the very first uh, albums I owned was Regatta de Blanc. And my brother used to listen to them all the time when I was growing up, so it just sunk in. The draw for me in my musical life has always been centered around the drummer. And Stuart Copeland was no slouch. But yeah. there was always something more at work with them. There was an energy. There was a fury. I've said that word before that was so punk but the songs were so well played and written that it was anything but punk. <laughs> that comparison always intrigued me. So I'm excited to talk about it because that, that was the dichotomy in my head was that it did have energy like, say, The Clash or something like that. But the songs were so well crafted. There was so so many unique sounds, so many unique styles like reggae. At nine years old, my familiarity with reggae was <laughs> extremely limited. So that sound was so interesting. And like, I don't know what it is. I don't know something drawn me in. So I've been listening to them forever. And, and you know, as a kid at, at 11, when Synchronicity came out and that was their last record, 
That was heartbreaking. Yeah. Because I'm like, I'm waiting for more police music to come. And there was nothing. And they all went completely separate directions with their careers. And so you were never even going to find police-like material again. Because yeah. none of their solo stuff is police-like. So I've always been a fan. What's crazy, too, is had they been like a one-album wonder band, you could have called it a flash in the pan. You could have said, oh, they just happened to get lucky. They were just, you know, they hit the right moment at the right time and they released it. They didn't. It spanned over, what, six years total? And yeah you know, was continuously this fantastic output. So you know that it was down to their actual musical talent and their ability to craft music in a way that was not only popular, but really well done. Yes. On the one hand, I think it's great that they broke up because we didn't end up with 10 more police albums that progressively got shittier and shittier and shittier. To right, because they, they didn't give a shit anymore. Exactly. You always have to ask the question, what if they would have done one more? Would it have been an amazing album? Mm. What if they had done two more? Would those have both been, what if they had done four more, you know, before they broke up? Would those have been as amazing and then they would have had a nine record streak that was just mind-blowing you wonder then music was definitely changing by the time synchronicity came out would they have adapted to yeah the styles or would they have continued to make the same similar record which then may not have been as popular because people's tastes were changing or yeah. things were getting less popular or more popular and who knows that's just one of those things where they got out when they needed to get out yeah and now everyone can hold that the catalog of material in such high regard because there's no pile of shit at the end of it that we're like, that's terrible. Yeah. They've made five great albums, but what about these last two? They're like, oh yeah, those are stinkers. So, <laughs> so we take a break and uh, come back and do a track by track? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Okay, spirits in the material world, but first Kyle has a note. Yeah, so uh, real real quick. <laughs> That's a good way to, yeah, sorry, I, I should have said that before we, we started. So just a real quick note, in 2022, they did release what's called an alternate sequence track order version of this album. Yeah, right. Uh, unfortunately, I believe on iTunes right now, that's the only version that's available. So if you want to listen to really? it in its original order, yeah. Oh, if you go to Spotify, though, you can listen to it in its original order. Right. If you want to listen to it in its original order on Apple, you can make a playlist in that correct order. I believe there's somebody has already published one as well. But just as a heads up, if you're following along with us and happen to be listening on Apple Music and you're like, why are they doing these out of order? We're doing them in the original order. Apple has them in the alternate sequence, quote unquote, order. Or you can go to your local record store sure. that would be and a great give way to Sting even more money. <laughs> if it's used, I don't think you give Sting any more additional money. Just as well, That's true. Up. That's true. That, okay. Good point. <laughs> so Spirits in the uh, Material World. Yes. Opening track uh, was released as a single in 81, would reach number 12 in the UK and number 11 in the US. Yeah. And, and then would be... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no go you ahead. go. No, you go. No, you go. Okay. It would be uh, the first of many contentious moments between band members on this record. As most of their hits were, this song was written by Sting. He composed the melody for the song while riding around in the tour bus on a Casio keyboard. Mm -hmm. And because he wrote the song on the synthesizer, he wanted to replace any guitar parts that would appear on the track with synth parts. And naturally, he wanted to be the one playing them, completely eliminating Summers from the track. Yeah. Weirdly, he said uh, in the Synchronicity tour program from 1983, he said of this song, quote, Spirits of the Material World was written on one of those Casio keyboards while I was riding in the back of a truck somewhere, just like you said. Yeah. I just tap, 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 and there it was, just by accident. That was the first time I'd ever touched a synthesizer on that album. Mm -hmm. So he'd never used one before and just started kind of playing with it, and then he's like, oh, here's a hit song. What a dick. <laughs> so then, <laughs> I pooped out a hit song accidentally. I don't know what happened. There it is. 
this. So there was considerable argument, but eventually they decided to record the tracks on both guitar and synthesizer, and eventually the guitar drowned out the synth on the finished track. Mm. But during this time, Sting uh, remarked to Andy Summers in the studio that the guitar part is, quote, pretty complicated, to which Andy Summers replied, I could play the part standing on my head if need be. <laughs> and the, anim the animosity between them was growing. Summers not only played guitar on this track, but he also played the Prophet 5 guitar synth, and that instrument appears all over this record. Mm -hmm. This is what the song sounds like. So according to Andy Summers, uh, the song was inspired by George Harrison. Mm. And while it would be very difficult to argue with him because I wasn't there, I can say that I don't hear a lot of that sound on this track. But it's irrelevant. What gets tricky there, too, is saying that something was inspired by one of the Beatles is like saying that was inspired by breathing. Yeah, we know <laughs> music was there. One of those weird crux points of, of a band that all music moving forward had to in some way be inspired by them. I mean, unless you go to like very heavily like, you know, oh, it came from the Indian subcontinent and was completely influenced by traditional Indian music. I mean, that still could be the Beatles. It still could be the Beatles. They were influenced by that. And then they, you know, split off from that. So, you know, unless you do something like that though and you can trace it back and say no no it was not at all inspired by the Beatles you can in theory say that anything in modern music was in some way inspired by the Beatles and probably find a way to make that work I agree with that so the song lyrics uh, are inspired by the Hungarian philosopher and author Arthur Kessler mm -hmm. this album is named after one of his books and he believed that outside sources could destroy our spirits and influence our thinking and that our higher functions would get corrupted by machines and replaced enter chat GPT Mm -hmm. and AI. Machines hmm. have begun to do the thinking and creating for us. Just recently, as this week, a few days ago, the RIAA placed parameters on Grammy Award nominations mm -hmm. that a certain percentage of a song for submission must be, quote, human-based and has limited the amount of AI that can be utilized on a track. And I think this is awesome, but how do you track it? Yeah, exactly. How do you control it? That's really what it all comes down to is, you know, at some point, I think in the near future, we will see somebody win a Grammy or win a major musical award and it will come out later that you know oh hey actually the engineer used an auto generating thing to fill in some lyrics yeah or you know it's it's kind of a, it's a progression of what we saw with autotune several years ago autotune was originally invented around the idea of let's say a piano player plays a perfect piece but messes one note up well now you can go in and touch that up with autotune and it's fixed okay great well now do you consider that the artist's original work or do you consider it a modified work or do you is it no longer valid and those were weird ethical questions that had to get answered and then auto-tune exploded onto the scene and obviously they used it for the stupid you know t-pain voice thing right uh, but on top of that it's now used in basically every single music production where they're like 
oh, that was off just by a little bit. We're just going to adjust that down. And oh, that's off by a little. We're going to adjust that up and we're going to, and it's now even automatic where you literally hit a button and it just fixes it all for you. Right. So now do you consider those artists, is that their art or is it now modified in such a way that it's no longer their art? And then this takes it even a step further where you're saying, okay, now the artist is maybe removed from the creation of it and mm. removed from the completion of it. Where does it end? Oh yeah. It's a huge ethical question and I don't think that there's a clear answer to it yet. And I think it's going to be a fascinating 10 or 15 year period and I just hope to God artists can survive it. Right. And I think that's what I'm saying. Like, how do you control it? I think it's yeah. so prevalent already that you're trying to tame a raging bull or, yeah. you know, you're trying to put the genie back inside the box now. Yeah. And I think this song is right on the money. Although it is structured as a political song, I believe that the implications can be used to describe this battle with AI and its uses and abuses at the same time. Absolutely. Kessler, who uh, heard that uh, this album, obviously was aware of this album, uh, said that he was, quote, slightly tickled by the homage. <laughs> it also, uh, <laughs> uh, the subsequent album, Synchronicity, was also inspired uh, by Kessler's The Roots of Coincidence, which mentions uh, Carl Jung's uh, theory of synchronicity, mm. which, uh, in case anybody's not familiar, is the idea that two things can happen in completely unrelated circumstances at the same time that have identical results. Ooh, very nice. Right? Uh, every little thing she does is magic. Everything she do does turn me on, Matthew. <laughs> She's This is one of my very favorite police songs. Happens to be my wife's ringtone. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, it was released as a single, topped the charts in the UK, reached number three in the US, and it is also another song of great contention. Yeah. Sting invited a keyboard player named Jean-Alain Roussel to join them for the recording of the album without saying a word to the other two guys. <laughs> Stewart and Andy were incensed as uh, they didn't want to become overproduced, over layered bands with keyboards and whatnot, but somehow this guy bamboozled Sting into flying him down from Canada after he and Sting had done some demo work in Toronto. Yeah. So apparently he was an okay player, but decided to add like 12 layers of keyboards to this song. So it's a very uncomfortable situation, as you can imagine. But they bite the bullet and head into the studio anyway, and he ends up smothering everything in keys, so much that they end up sounding like yes on a bad day. Those are Summer's <laughs> words. That's what he said. <laughs> That's such a good quote. So he makes the problem worse, this guy, Roussel. He makes the problem worse by leaning over the console every few minutes and exclaiming, listen to that. Boy, if I ever heard that, I would love to have it on my album. <laughs> so eventually all three of them tire of the bullshit <laughs> and send him out the door. But his contribution to the finished track remains. The song itself predates the police mm -hmm. to some degree. Sting had been working on a demo of this back in 1975, and it actually appears on a Strontium 90 recording with Mike Howlett on bass, and it was the very first first song that he played for his two other police bandmates to tell them that he had musical ideas. And the song sounds like this.
So I don't know how true this is, but what I read about this was all that happened uh, uh, with uh, Jean Roussel. They ended up in the end scrapping almost all of that. They used barely any of his piano, went back to Sting's original demo piano, and then uh, dubbed over it to make the final version. Yes. Yeah, so one of the best parts of this whole story, and that that is true, it was Copeland and Summer's attitude. They thought the song with the keyboard parts was, in their words, crummy. And in order to prove their point, they decided to just record their parts over Sting's demo oh, to great. show Sting how bad it was. And they did one take. The one take is the take on the finished product. <laughs> so not crummy, because they probably nailed it the first, well, obviously they nailed it the first time, and they're like, oh, well, shit, that's good. <laughs> ah, crap. All right, Way to done. prove Sting wrong again. God damn it. Uh, so this is actually my very first police song that I can recall anyways. Yeah. It was on a uh, a mixtape that my cousin Tracy made for me when I was maybe five or six years old. Ooh, mixtape. And I think this was the opener to the first side. And I remember that Red Red Wine was the closer to the first side because it got cut off because obviously, you know, you weren't quite sure if it was going to fit or not. So then it was repeated on the beginning of the second side. Red Red Wine? Red Red Wine song? was. Oh, the yeah. Red Red Wine was. Was on there twice? It was on there basically twice. One and a half it, times? It got cut off like 85% of the way through, basically. And so then it was repeated on the beginning of the second side. I listened to that tape so much, though, that I wore it out. UB40. So. Right? Oh, boy. Invisible Sun? Invisible Sun. Uh, weirdly, the first single released from the album in the UK, but not uh, in UK and Europe, but not in America. Yeah. Reached number two in the UK, number five in Ireland, 27 in the Netherlands. Unlike Roxanne, which was not banned by the BBC, mm-hmm. this was. Yes. Because you can't write a song about the troubles in Northern Ireland without right? getting banned. That was a verboten subject at the time yes. uh, in uh, the UK. Uh, Sting actually has clearly said what this was about when he was living in uh, outside of Belfast during uh, the hunger strikes and the troubles. He said, quote, I wanted to write about that, but I wanted to show some light at the end of the tunnel. I do think there has to be a, quote, invisible sun, end quote. You can't always see it, but there has to be something radiating light into our lives. Yeah. Which I thought was a very positive message. It is. And he's full of positive messages. Right. Invisible Sun, sir, it's a kind of a commentary on the imprisonment of the Irish Republican Army members in the infamous H blocks of May's prison in Northern Ireland during the Troubles in 1981. A number of prisoners went on hunger strikes to protest conditions in the jail. Among those to die was uh, Bobby Sands, who was elected to the British Parliament while a prisoner, mm-hmm. only to die on May 5th, 1981. And he was the first of eight people to succumb to the effects of the hunger strikes. This is one of my very favorite sounding songs of the police catalog. And I love hearing it live. Sting actually continues to do this song in concert. Oh, cool. And it's always a highlight. Uh, it sounds like this.
And as a testament to the fact that songs mean what you want them to mean, Stuart Copeland says this song isn't about Ireland for him, <laughs> but Beirut. He said this, For me, the song was about Beirut, where I'd grown up, which at that point was going up in flames. My hometown was being vilified by the media as a terrorist stronghold, and it was being blasted by bombs and napalm. 20,000 Lebanese were killed that year, and the Lebanese must have been feeling some heat from the invisible sun because they were keeping their peckers up. <laughs> Classy as always, Stu. So back as a kid, I never knew what this song was about until I looked up what an Armalite was. Hmm. I knew it was a gun, but not the origins, and it sounded so weird. It is an IRA weapon and super easy to conceal. I found that one at the local library where I used to write down weird song lyrics at home and then (laughs) go to the Walt Whitman branch of the Warren Public Library system and look that shit up. That's how I found out a lot of stuff. I'm like, Armalite? What the fuck? What's an Armalite? I'm going to write that down. And walk the two blocks to the library and look it up. <laughs> IRA? Like like retirement account? Oh, Irish Republican mind. Oh, different. I'm going to be very honest with you. Uh, a few years ago is the first time I really started to, to understand, well, 10 years ago now, I'm older than I think I am, when I really started to understand <laughs> what was meant by the troubles in Northern Ireland. Mm. Because there was so little coverage of it on US media when I was growing up that it was like, Zero. oh yeah, it's, yeah. you know, oh, maybe there's somebody that's a little upset, whatever. My husband spent some time in Ireland. His mother is... Uh, Uh, from Northern Ireland. And he would tell me stories about like, oh yeah, well, you know, in in July, there was like a week where we weren't allowed to go outside because uh, people would light, you know, the street on fire. And I was like, excuse me, what? And he's like, oh yeah, the IRA, like supporters of the IRA would get together a bunch of wood and uh, pallets and stuff and just light a giant bonfire in the middle of the street. And so my parents wouldn't let us go out for like a week or 10 days during that time. And I was like, uh, what? (laughs) So, you know, I started to kind of like research it and figure out, and this was actually like terrible. The things that, you know, were happening in Northern Ireland that were suppressed by American media that were never talked about and presumably suppressed by, you know, media in the UK as well. So people didn't actually know what was going on were horrible. I mean, there were all kinds of horrible atrocities that were committed on both. Don't get me wrong here on both sides. Mm -hmm. But uh, to, to even drive this deeper, I knew that my husband's uncle, who still lives in Northern Ireland, had worked for the police forces in Northern Ireland. And when we went there to visit them uh, last year, or a couple of years ago now, we were sitting talking in their living room one day and he started talking about his time in the police force and everything. And he's pulled out this photo album and what he had actually done with the police force was he was like an investigator who would go like, so after there had been a bombing, he was the person who had to go investigate it and figure out like, oh, you know, we need to map out where we think the bomb actually went off and, you know, find all the information to investigate what, you know, was it in a car? Was it in a bag? Was it wherever? And so he had all these pictures of like, oh yeah, here's all these unreleased pictures of like a bomb site in, you know, Belfast. And he'd flip through the book and be like, oh yeah, this was really horrible. And here's this. And <laughs> it was, it was crazy talking to him, first of all. But then what sank it even deeper into my mind was a few months ago, there was a, an article in uh, uh, Reuters uh, that was like, uh, you know, it's been 10 years or, or 20 years or something since the troubles or 25 years since the, whatever accords were signed and the troubles were, you know, uh, suspended in Northern Ireland and it's been, you know, relatively peaceful since then. But they had a picture right on the front page of the bombing and I'm looking at it and I'm like, I saw that picture in that photo book. (laughs) And I'm looking at it and I'm like, that's John's uncle right there standing in that group of policemen that were investigating that bombing. And I'm like, oh, mind blowing. 
crazy. That is crazy. So, sorry to divert there, but I, no, I no. felt like it was very relevant for this. It is relevant. That's that's a that's a great story. But yeah, they were awful. Yeah, but they weren't reported here because it doesn't have anything to do with us. And right, you know, if it doesn't have anything to do with us. They don't talk about it. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Hungry for you? Oh well, thank you. Or oh. j'aurai toujours femme de toi. Femme de toi. Ah. Uh, literally translates as I will always be hungry for you. Correct. <laughs> Ooh la la. 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 I I thought maybe this might be a fuck song, Matthew, and confirmed by Sting. He said, quote, lust. The song is about, quote, lust, impure and simple. Trudy helped me with the French and a lot Uh of the passion. Uh I have Uh, those exact same quotes in here. Trudy is uh, Trudy Styler, uh, who Sting had a scandalous romance with. Yes. Uh, he was still married to actress Frances Tomalty, uh, uh, and Trudy especially uh, took a lot of hits from the press for being the quote-unquote other woman. Yes. Uh, they eventually married, though, in 1992. So And had four more kids. Yeah. Uh, and except how, for- What? How many kids does Sting have total? Do you know? Six. Six? Okay. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah. less than Nick Cannon. That is true. Uh, except for one chorus towards the end of the song, uh, this is sung completely in French. And the it sounds love. a little bit- more like older police there's a little more energy uh it sounds like this First verse of the song in English is "No sleep tonight. I want you until I'm thirsty, but our uh, our bodies are all wet, completely covered in sweat." Oh my! And I know, right? I had to look it up. This is one of the first things I did when I started uh, freshman year French in high school. <laughs> I brought this record. I'm like, translate this. I don't know what it means. I hope the teacher was just like, I cannot legally tell you that. No, he was uh, Mr. Uh, Richard McMullen, who was a, a Irish guy who spoke like eight languages languages fluently wow. and also an incredible musician just one of the finest musicians I ever met in my life he was in a Irish or Gaelic band oh, cool. that used to play at uh, a uh, the hell was the name of that it was an Irish bar downtown Detroit they used to play every week the name of his band was Blackthorn and he was so good and he's like well you got there I'm like, this goes in the machine. He goes, you want the lyrics to, yeah, I want the lyrics to Hungry For You. He's like, all right, I'll tell you what they are. Yeah, he awesome. was such a, he was so great. So I, great. I've always wondered if there's a, a, a connection between people who are polyglots and people who are amazing musicians. I think I so. Feel like, I feel like that unlocks the same part of the brain somehow. Old Shillelagh. That's the name of the Irish bar. Ah. The old Shillelagh in downtown Detroit. <laughs> oh my God. We went down, Heather and I went down there and I was so great. I mean, old style Irish pub. Uh, everyone's singing along they you know tablecloths just covered in beer eventually someone <laughs> would stand up on the table and start dancing i'm like this i want to party here all the time yeah, that's awesome <laughs> yeah great great song too uh demolition man demolition man yeah, I was say written by Sting and originally performed by Grace Jones on her album Nightclubbing. Yes. Uh, Grace Jones, in case the audience is not familiar, uh, you would probably recognize as Mayday from the James Bond film A View to a Kill. Mm. She is a very tall woman, uh, over six foot. 
dwarfed uh, uh, Roger Moore in that film, uh, which is interesting. Of note, Sting wrote this song while visiting his friend Peter O'Toole, who happened to be dating Trudy Styler at the time. Oh. So he seems to have been obsessed with her for a while. Oh my. So when the band listened to the Grace Jones version, they all said, oh shit, we could do way better than that. (laughs) So they did it in one take. And according to Summers, it is a much ballsier version of the song, something he would have expected Jones to do in the first place. So Sting doesn't play bass on this song. He does, however, play saxophone, Mm -hmm. an instrument he had uh, just been learning at the time. But the bass is played by Sting's roadie, Danny Quattrochi. It also has a killer guitar solo by Summers. Uh, He, at one point, uh, he played what was considered at that time the longest guitar solo in history of rock music in 1969 in a song called Colored Rain, originally by Traffic, but then covered by The Animals. And here's a little bit of that solo right here. song's eight and a half minutes long. The guitar solo's four plus. Damn. That is very, like, Fish, uh, Grateful Dead style. Yeah. Like, long guitar solo that's just a jam. That's cool. Just noodly. But Demolition Man sounds like this. The song obviously has had additional life through the years. Uh, it was the title for the 1993 Sylvester Stallone movie, Demolition Man. Oh, hold on. Sylvester Stallone, Wesley Snipes, Sandra Bullock film. Correct. Get it Get it right, Matthew. And the question comes up whenever this movie is brought up. Do Matthew, I know how to use exactly. the three Exactly. Do you know how to use the three seashells? It doesn't know how to use the three seashells. <laughs> Rob Schneider's character in that is just such a nerdy, ugh, I hate him. I just want to punch him. The character, not Rob Schneider. I don't want to, I don't really need a, an article written about me in a, whatever magazine it is. He always releases those articles in about people. So Demolition Man featured a new version of this song by staying over the ending credits. Mm-hmm. Song also incru- uh, includes some of my very favorite police lyrics. Ooh. I'm a walking nightmare, an arsenal of doom. I can kill a conversation as I walk into the room. I'm a three-line whip. I'm the sort of thing they ban. I'm a walking disaster. I'm a demolition man. So good. Freaking great. So contrary to popular belief, that three-line whip line is not about sadomasochism, Mm -hmm. but parliamentary voting procedures. Yep. Uh, It's basically what they say when they want everyone in the party to vote on party lines. Too much information. Oh, I'm sorry. I can pull it back a little bit if you want. Oh, no. That's the name of the next song. Oh, right. (laughs) More horns. Uh, Yes. You know, we've heard a little bit in the previous couple of songs, but now it really picks up with some horns. It does. It's really horny. <laughs> Sorry, I wrote that whole 
whole thing just to say that. I bet you did. So first song off the second side of the vinyl. Pretty typical police song. It's fast-ish. It's got energy. Somewhat repetitive lyrics that they're kind of known for. And now this thing that we have enjoyed for over 40 years has developed into a very nuanced writer Mm -hmm. of melody and lyrics. He's used jazz, folk, reggae, soft rock. He's uh, composed on the lute, you know. He's delivered his message in a number of different ways. But I feel that he could have cranked out songs like this at a moment's notice. Yeah. This song and the song that follows, Rehumanize Yourself, follow the same construction, similar tempo, similar melody lines, and it harkens back to that earlier stuff. Even if they showed up with a week to record an album, I feel that if necessary, he could have cobbled together 10 of these and it would have still sounded great. Oh, probably, yeah. I think the only difference is the horn line, which is a little bit, like you said, it's a little bit funkier than most. But I love the double track vocal line. Sounds like this. that they do a great job of delivering too much information to you in this song. They they push it real hard. They, they The lyrics are sung very quickly. Everything is delivered in a very fast pace. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole concept of the song is that, you know, modern life is overwhelming. There's too much information. Globalization is taking over. This is 1980. You know, uh, the idea that, you know, maybe Japan is going to be the first country to, you know, overtake the U.S. as the world, the most powerful country in the world. You know, who knows? Economically yeah. speaking, anyways. You know, it was a serious concern for people in the 1980s. And I think this song directly speaks to it and then does a, on top of that fantastic job of giving you that feeling by just listening to the song because you're overwhelmed with the delivery. Yeah, that's an excellent point. But it's like uh, Spirits in the Material World. It's song is kind of warning against the rising tide of, of information. Remember, yeah. this is 43 years ago. And like our entire world now just is inundated with information all the time. Too many channels, too many podcasts, not this one, <laughs> too much it's everything. All, it's all the and other podcasts. Other podcasts. And at some point, you have to find a way to separate yourself from it. And I think yeah, that's kind of what he's addressing there. But yeah. rehumanize yourself. Which clearly these two were written to follow one another. Or yes. Rehumanize was written to follow too much information because it is literally the the counterpoint to that song is even though this song is still fast and it's still, you know, an incredibly quick delivery, you need to take a minute and you need to step back from the world and step back from everything, take a breath and rehumanize yourself. So one of the only two songs on the record that was provided uh, that did provide a songwriting credit to Stuart Copeland. Um, this has a great rock reggae mix to it. And the lyrics are all about rejecting xenophobia, racism, and violence. The lyrics that were originally written by Copeland were not nearly as politically strident as these sting lyrics. <laughs> and it is essentially a song about how violent the police, the actual police, not the band, were, and kids were going out and joining local skinhead gangs or groups like the National Front to fight back. The National Front is a far-right fascist party from the UK, hell-bent on stopping immigration into the UK, and it was founded in 1967, only white people are admitted into the organization, and it is just as deplorable as it sounds. The song itself sounds like this. 
So the line, uh, the kick a boy to death because he don't belong from the first verse was inspired by a real life tragedy that unfolded near Sting's home when a gang of skinheads kicked a young man to death. Sting remembered this. He said, it was around the time my first son was born. And when you become a father for the first time, peace and nonviolence becomes ever more of an imperative. Right. And it's crazy. Like you could hear what he's writing about. I mean, punk movement is probably fighting back at this a little bit because they want to kick the shit out of the police, but not the police, the band, the police, the police, Uh, the police, not the right. police. Police. So Sting, excuse me, Sting played all the horn and keyboard lines in this song, which is cool. And he was becoming quite the intrume- instrumentalist by this point. This is also most definitely the first song that I ever heard that used the C-U-N-T word in it. Um, <laughs> I still can't bring myself to say that word. And just the sound of it makes my skin crawl. But this was definitely the first time I'm like, what? Why do you can't say that in a song? You can't just Can sing that? No, you. Yeah. Unless you're Scottish. I guess you can get away with it. Oh, that's yeah, true. Scottish love that word so uh one world not three yeah uh, it's a song about poverty and the three in the title actually refers to the concept of the third world uh not as i originally thought maybe the three members of the band ah yes because uh, i originally was like oh maybe this is a song but i had not heard this song before okay and I, I thought maybe oh this is a song about the band maybe trying to start to pull apart from one another but then sting was like no no we're one world but it's not it's about the the third world and in case you're not familiar the use of the term third world uh, initially arose during the cold war and was used to define countries that did not align themselves with the nato or north atlantic Treaty Organization or the Warsaw Pact. Yes. So in other words, the term was used to classify countries that did not pick a faction during the Cold War. So it's another song that shows Sting's growing political point of view. Like you said, the song is about third world countries in need of assistance and advises us that that there should not be three worlds, that the goal should be to lift those countries up so we are all one world. And it's a very lofty goal, but not the wrong message. I think it is our responsibility, if we can do so responsibly, to do exactly that and try to assure that all people can live relatively the same with similar opportunities. Originally, the lyrics to the song were written by Stuart Copeland, but once again, Sting rewrote them. (laughs) Copeland had used the term third world in his lyrics, and Sting found that term patronizing. So musically, the song features similar reggae rhythms, uh, and this is considered by many to be the most police song on the record. And the band, in an interview, uh, has this to say, this Stuart Copeland says, and it was my favorite song at the time because it did have that early police vibe where we jammed on one chord for hours. Summers says, Unfortunately, I never did find out what that one chord was. Copeland says, I guess Sting had a problem with the term third world. He thought it was patronizing or something. I had all these political arguments about the Cold War. Sting and I would argue about politics and I would lay waste to his flimsy arguments. There he'd be at the table shattered and then he'd quickly disappear up into his hotel room where he'd, Sting, snore, actually. (laughs) Copeland, and he'd come in the next morning with one line, just three or four words that would shatter my logical geopolitical arguments. One world is enough. Sting. Stuart, you can't argue with the metaphor. Summers, there's a lettuce, there's a lesson in all this. Metaphors be with you. <laughs> that interview took place in 2000. Damn. So they were still friendly with one another. And there were definitely still some laughs there. Something that I'm sure allowed that 2007 reunion tour to move forward at all. The fact that they're still friendly and can joke about this shit all those years later. Yeah. Um, and one world, not three. Sounds like this.
Omega Man? Omega Man. Stylized with the symbol for Omega, replacing the O in the word, so I guess that would make this the Omega Mega Man? That would make sense, yes. Omega Mega Man, right? According to Song Facts, this is an apocalyptic song that was written by Andy, who was inspired by the 1973 movie Soylent Green. Soylent Green. Starring Charlton Heston, which is weird to me. So, the film Soylent Green, uh, it's about overpopulation, poverty, and climate change, which have led to uh, worldwide food rationing. Mm -hmm. A big corporation creates a food product called Soylent Green that feeds all the population but it turns out that it's made from dead people. Yes. So, slightly a problem. Weirdly, though, both Charlton Heston, who stars in that movie, and the director of the, uh, that movie, Boris Segal, made a movie before that called The Omega, Omega Man, Man? Uh, which was based on the 1954 Richard Matheson novel I Am Legend. So, it's weird to me. Like, when I when I read that on Song Facts, I was like, do they mean Omega Man? Like, why would you be inspired by Soylent Green to write a song called Omega Man when both the director and the star of that movie were in a movie called The Omega Man? <laughs> so a little weird, but I have no answers for you. That is strange. Yeah. But this is the only song on the record that Andy Summers was credited with at all. Mm-hmm. Summers is as surprised as anyone that one of his songs made the record because Sting is so adamant about only including his songs. This is most likely uh, why almost all the songs through the course of their catalog that are written or co-written by Copeland or Summers appear at the very backs of their records, yeah. buried after all of the hits. But this one seems especially painful. After it has been insinuated by Sting that some of the guitar parts on the record may be beyond Summers, uh, he now gets the ultimate knife in the back. So apparently Sting did not even want to sing this song, and according to Summers, did so resentfully. And it sounds like it. It doesn't have the same Sting energy. And after they recorded this song, Ma- manager Miles Copeland took this song to AM Records, and they were absolutely convinced that this song was the lead single. But Sting refused. He was adamant that it not be this song, and the label was so afraid to piss off their cash cow in the making, they changed it. Oh, that's a bummer. Summers got the shaft so often during the police's run that it's amazing that he stayed for five records, but money will do that. And this song has a similar dystopian feel to Spirits in the Material World, and it's pretty mm-hmm. surprising to me, actually, that they would have wanted this as the lead single because the chords he's playing are so odd. Not something you would normally hear on a successful pop single, and it sounds like this. Such an odd-sounding song. It really is. It's almost an uncomfortable feel to it. Mm-hmm. It almost throws you because it's not what you're used to musically. It almost throws you off balance, and you're like, "Wait a minute, what the hell am I listening to right now?" Agreed. I read the same thing about Soylent Green, and I think it's a mistake. I think it's the Omega Man is probably I, I do the too, movie. That they, I was man. like, mm, <laughs> that doesn't feel right to me. But and the lyrics to the song are actually really good, and it, yeah. it may have been nice to see what else Summers could have contributed over the years uh, that Sting kiboshed. You know, yeah. what what didn't he allow through? 
through. I'm curious to know if, if Summers is the one who actually suggested the title because, you know, Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Mm-hmm. So in this case, like Omega Man would be the last man standing. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm also wondering if Sting suggested that, was it a diss? Was he like, you're the Omega Man, you're below everyone else? Oof. There's Alpha, there's Beta, <laughs> and then there's Omega, and that's and then you. you. You are below everybody else. It's possible. He was the last guy in. Right. Yep. Secret Journey. Such a departure, in my opinion, for the band. And it's a song that I absolutely love, but it was released as a single in Canada and the States, but not in the UK. It managed to reach number 46 on the Billboard chart, which I think is more of a testament to the power of the band at this point, mm-hmm. uh, because this isn't a pop single. No, not First of all, all, it's written about a holy man that is making a mystical journey. Second of all, it has a lot of elements of prog in it, especially the drumming and some of the odd time signature changes. Not something you would normally hear on Top 40 radio. Yeah, It's a song that Sting claims he wrote about looking for spiritual guidance in the world and finding it in my own heart, which is yeah. nice. The uh, the quote from the uh, Ghost in the Machine press release from October 1981 from Sting very much sounds like the Sting we would come to know years later. He said, quote, it's a quasi-mystical song. You have to do something, go somewhere to get outside yourself. I read the book Meetings with Remarkable Men, which says you have to make a journey. It doesn't have to be a real journey. It could be a mental journey. <clears throat> that very much sounds like the doing a t- tantric, t- tantric sex you know, living in a, a Tuscan villa sting that we're, we would become familiar with another 20 years after this. There cannot be one police or sting episode without mention of tantric sex no, there can't. in his Tuscan villa. It's a legal requirement. I'm sorry, I don't make the rules. I know, I get it. Many critics have suggested that this was the strongest song on the record, and even Andy Summers thought that this song should have been the lead single. Yeah, he said it was one of his favorites, too. Right. So I think that is so odd, but uh, however you slice it, I love this song, and it sounds like this. There are so many things to really love about this song. The guitar work and drums are excellent. The stops and starts throughout the whole song are very cool. Uh, The only thing I would change would be how it ended. Hmm. But I think we, as police fans, know if there's one thing that they always had trouble doing was ending a song. (laughs) 29 repeats of sending out an SOS on Message in a Bottle is all you ever need to know about that. 29 repeats. But yeah, the song just kind of fades out strangely after it had already faded out and faded back in. It's very... Uh, I'm sure Hugh Padgham's just having a little fun in the studio, but whatever. Right. Bring the fader down and then back up and then back, and then down. back down. And now we're done. And then back up and then back up. Uh, oh. 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 A little hint in there. Oh. <laughs> I really feel like this song belongs right after. Uh, wow, I just totally went brain dead. Sorry. Uh, Spirits in the Material World. Mm. I feel like they're like somehow connected. I feel like they could follow one right after the other and they would fit very well. Are they that way in the alternate track listing? 
They are not. I was just okay. looking at that actually. And it is uh the alternate track listing is spirits uh sorry, uh, spirits of the material world and then immediately too much information. Oh, okay. Secret Journey is actually the third track on this one, so it's two before uh, Spirits huh. in the Material World. All right, that's weird. weird. Darkness? It's a song about a subject we keep coming back to uh, in a lot of albums. Uh, it's the downsides of being famous. Sure. The the last song in the record and the only song in the album on which Stuart Copeland receives a solo songwriting mm-hmm. credit. Back of the album again. It's the right. last song. I noted that. I was like, interesting. This was uh, originally placed as the last track on the album. L- last track. Uh, it's about his disillusionment with fame at the time. As evidenced by the lyrics, instead of worrying about my clothes, I could be somebody that nobody knows. I wish I never woke up this morning. Life was easy when it was boring. I don't think that's a reference to wanting to be dead, just more like I don't want to be where I am. It would yeah. be much easier to be home and be nobody than this life, right? It's a pretty somber sounding piece. It sounds like this. song. One thing I really hate is how much Sting marginalized the guys in the band as much as he did, because they were excellent songwriters and musicians. And this, the sound of this song really kind of uh, paves the way for what came next for Stuart Copeland. If anyone has followed Stuart Copeland's career, he's probably done 40 or 50 movie soundtracks. Yeah. Impressive movie list. And he has that, that has a very interscene sound to it, where it is soundtrack type stuff that's background music and stuff like that. He also, uh, right after Synchronicity came out, he released an album called uh, The Rhythmatist, which was a solo record. And he recorded it completely in Africa, and he utilized sounds of elephants grunting, and he used native drums and all this other stuff. And it was very, just very much a departure from who the police were. Hmm. Like, massive change of pace. And it is one of the, the best instrumental records that I've ever heard. And it's just super interesting. And that just bothered me that Sting always did that. Sting has, you know, had a very successful career and he was probably doing what was best for him, but it just sucks that in a, in the band environment that he kind of marginalized him like that. Yeah. But that is Ghost in the Machine by The Police. What a great uh, album this is. I mean, it really is, like you said, it's it's the fourth out of five just amazing albums in a row and it is is such a, I mean, even with the slightly, you know, I don't know if you even want to call them weaker tracks towards the end of this album, mm. it's a great album. It is beginning to end. Wonderful to listen to it still holds up it has a little bit of that because of the synth it has a little bit of that 80s sound to it but not overwhelmingly so and I don't feel like it's enough to like place it in that you know oh it's really of its time you have to think of it as an 80s album you can listen to this and it's still very contemporary agreed and we want to know uh, what you guys think about it please let us know whether you like the police tell us uh, if you hate the police tell us uh, about the British tax situation I would love to know about that Uh, you can get a hold of us on our uh, social media accounts 
at facebook.com forward slash audio judo, uh, Twitter at audio judo, and Instagram at audio underscore judo. Or you can email us a big long-winded explanation about why you hate this record to info at audio judo.com. We respond to that one fairly quickly. You got uh, shout outs? Yeah, some shout outs yeah. to our patrons. Uh, Christian S, David W, Kristen K, Michael S, Scott K, all of our backstage past tier patrons. Thank you so much. Uh, Aaron P, Darling W, Michael A, Front Row Seats tier. Uh, thank you all so much. Simon C, our UK consultant. Maybe you know about UK tax laws regarding recording albums. If you do, let us know. Uh, but uh, that is all our patrons. Thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. And yeah, we, we hope have, you enjoyed this episode. Definitely. We have episodes coming up from uh, Roxy Music, mm-hmm. uh, Judas Priest. Ooh, yeah. We have a patron episode coming up shortly and uh, the start of season five. Yeah. So uh, stick with us, everybody. And uh, until two weeks from now, uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.